You just ran for state senator, right? So I know, realize you didn't win. Of course, that's okay. What did you learn from doing that? Any advice you give for somebody running for office? Or? Uh, yeah, I I realized how focused everybody is on the short game, meaning they expect like immediate change. Uh, they expect their politicians to do things that are not in the in the like range of what that position is responsible for doing people want government to solve all of their problems and i i realize that we as a as a people just don't have a, a good concept of the proper role of government and specifically the proper role of each position in government people just see like the government has the capability to solve my problems. You are part of the government, solve my problems. It's really interesting. And uh, it means that there's a lot of education that needs to happen. Yeah, definitely. The reason I got to talk to you yesterday was because of the term limit thing. And a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of people saying, oh, we just need term limits. We need term limits. And my dad always told me, you know, you don't, you don't mess with the constitution. It's inspired. Those guys studied, they knew what they were doing and they thought through all of the scenarios and just don't mess with it. We're more likely to mess it up. But I don't really know the reason behind why the term limits could be problematic because that's more of a strategy thing. And the, and the founders always looked at strategy and human nature and mm -hmm. all those different things. So can you explain to me why term limits isn't a great idea? Uh, yeah, so when you have an imposed term limit, um, it, let's say if you're going to become the president and, and you're only allowed to be in for two terms or you're going to be a senator, uh, like a senator in Congress, and you're only allowed for two terms, that means that the, the entire first term, you're concerned about making sure that you're behaving in a way that is approvable to those who elected you and you're you're much more concerned about staying within the, the boundaries of the constitution you're more concerned about um, promoting the interests of those who you represent because there's a chance that you can get reelected and you want to impress them after your second election for the entire second term so the other half of your uh, involvement in politics, you know that no matter what you do, you can't get reelected. And so that, uh, that representative will fail to represent the interests of those who elected them. And so then they're going to spend that time representing special interests and representing um, big money or their own private interests. There's there's so many different things that can creep in when you aren't concerned about representing those who elected you. That's one big problem. It it turns your your entire second term into a lame duck uh, presidency or lame duck uh, sen senatorial um, uh, experience. Another reason is. They, they did not want to limit the people from putting in someone that they considered to be good, wise, and honest. Um, they, they didn't want 
the the constitution to tell the people that even though that person uh, may have been good for you know two terms or whatever that they're not allowed to serve any longer a good example is is uh joanne wood um here in idaho she went to Klanskowski's seminars many, many, many years ago. Um, the Making of America seminars. She was absolutely converted to the cause of freedom. Absolutely committed to the Constitution. Um, she ended up serving, I think, sixteen terms in office. And to the day she ended, she was absolutely commitment, uh, absolutely consistent, totally committed to uh, to the Constitution. She was an excellent representative. And if we had term limits, someone like her could have only participated for, you know, what, four years instead of, you know, what, two, uh, 12 terms, that's like 24 years in office. And she did an excellent job. The founders didn't want people like her to be restricted if they had a, you know, she clearly has a special talent for ser um, serving in public office. The people wanted her in. It was, a, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement, and the founders didn't want to uh, intervene in that um, informed decision that was made by the, the people. Um, another reason is... Generally, when we talk about people serving in office for way too long and are unaccountable to the, uh, like they, they aren't representing the people well, uh, we're generally talking about the President of the United States or the Senate. And ironically, those are the two positions that we have changed how they get elected. And we've given that responsibility to the people when originally it wasn't the people voting for those positions. So if not we even the president. Uh, nope. We were originally, we had electors that did their own studying, did their own interviewing, did their own research, and they chose the president, not, not the people. Now in some States, the people could vote for the electors, but today we tell electors, they have to vote for a specific person. And yeah. that's why we vote for them. Whereas before, we identified electors that um, we knew were wise, were honest, were good people who would do the research and vote better than we would. Mm. Today, we're just like, I'm, I'm not going to vote for you unless you promise to vote for my pit. Yeah, my pit. <laughs> and so like, it, it's, a, it's a pseudo electoral college. We've destroyed the electoral college and uh, originally it was that was intentionally removed from the people um, and I think the best the best electors were the ones that were chosen by the state representatives because that was even further removed from the people so it was a double republic the the people elected their state legislatures the state legislatures elected the electors, the electors elected the president. So it's like two or three layers of, of the Republic um, removed from the people's emotionalism. And, and there's a lot to be said for why we didn't want uh, democracy, why we didn't want 
mass participation in politics by people who were uneducated and uninformed. Um, obviously, the ideal is for these people to get educated and informed so that they can vote because we want everybody's input. We just want that input to be informed. The founders uh, made it very clear how they felt about democracy, how they felt about the you know mass participation in politics. One of the reasons that encouraging everyone to vote has become dangerous is because we've started to allow direct elements of direct democracy into our republic. The reason we call it a democratic republic is not because we want the people voting on actual policies. It's because, you know, once every year or couple years, the, the entire democracy of the people comes together to vote on representatives. And so the democracy transforms into a republic when everybody directly votes for their representative. Um, after that, it's no longer a democracy, it's now a republic. And those people who we've elected, they're the ones that are supposed to vote on, on the bills. Um, but we allow ballot initiatives um, and propositions. We allow people to vote on their ballot for specific issues that are supposed to be reserved for the legislatures. That's a problem. Um, and so it's things like that. That's, that's why Medicaid expansion got passed in Idaho, even though our representatives voted it down. It was given to the people and the people demanded it to our, you know, to our detriment. They, they voted for Medicaid expansion and now uh, the state has to figure out where it's coming up with four to six billion dollars a year. Yeah, I I support that that theory of yours that we don't want everybody voting um, right away, but that we want people to be educated and and uh, the the more we the more success we have restoring the constitution and restoring the uh, specifically the state constitutions, the less destructive it is when everybody just goes out to vote regardless of how much they've been educated. So you said that the president uh, was appointed by the electors who were either appointed by their states or voted on by the people to be the electors and they had a, a capability to choose somewhat someone different than maybe well, now we're telling them what they mm -hmm. vote for, right? Those electors represent specific candidates. So when did that change? Is that in the, the amendment where the president and the vice president, the way they were appointed before, or where did that change? Constitution? Um, most of it hasn't really, most of it hasn't really been through constitutional changes. It's been through unconstitutional changes to the process uh, where we've really integrated political parties into the system. If you want a really good study on this, um, read a book called The Evolution and Destruction of the Original Electoral College uh, by, I think it's Gary and Carolyn Alder, I think it was their names. Um, and they detail how the Electoral College has changed virtually every election since the Constitution was originally established. So it's been, it's been a gradual change over time, but they document each election and how it was slightly different. Hmm. Okay, 
So going back to the term limit things, if they didn't want it, and I understand why they didn't want it, what's the solution? If, if we have a major political problem right now, why does it exist? Um, because those haven't always existed. Um, originally, our constitution was so intact and, and our political system was running so smooth that at one point when Thomas Jefferson was the president, he commented that he had no idea what changes Congress was even going to suggest during that next session. Um, he said, I can't hardly think of anything that needs to be addressed. Um, and if you look at the number of bills that that have been um, passed by Congress over the years, I mean, we're in the hundreds and thousands um, each each term now, whereas previously, I mean, we were in the single and double digits. Um, I think there were some years, don't quote me on this, but I think there were at least a, a couple of years where, where Congress um, did less than 10 bills in the entire session because there really just wasn't much that needed to be changed. And now here we are thinking that we've improved the, the Constitution so much with 27 amendments, yet we're passing hundreds of bills every session. It just, it's not consistent. We, um, we need to figure out, well, what happens to allow the problems that we have today to even exist? What changes have made that have opened up the door to a lot of issues? And one of the biggest changes that we've made to the Constitution um, has been dealing with the Senate. That's the 17th Amendment, which changed how, changed how senators were elected. Originally, they were elected by state legislatures, and they were hired to specifically represent states' interests. Um, this is called federalism, um, where, where you're looking at which level of government should be responsible for solving specific types of problems, and how do you structure government so that one of, one of the, the ideas the founders had was um, split up government into uh, multiple levels, vertically and horizontally, and pit each level of government against the other so that the jealousy of the individuals in government is pulling for problems to be solved in the correct places. And so you wanted the jealousy of the states to be pitted against the federal so that they're pulling power down from the federal so that they can solve it at the state level. And then having counties and, and cities, local governments, pulling power down from the state so that they can solve it more locally. You want, you want the pull of power to be downwards rather than upwards. Um, the Senate was specifically designed to represent states' interests. And that only worked because the senators were elected by the state legislatures. You can't expect somebody who's voted in by the people to be interested in fighting for somebody else who they're unaccountable to. And that's what we're doing right now. We've, we have decided that we want to elect the senators, but expecting them to be accountable to and report to somebody else. Senators have to raise millions and millions of dollars to have successful campaigns in their states. Um, 
I remember right, there was a report that was done that said senators need to raise something in the range of $40,000 a day for every day that they're in office for the six years just to have enough money to win the next election. And we're surprised when senators are beholden to special interest groups. Because senators are elected by the people, and that senator has to campaign to millions of people, it, they rely on, on money and advertisements to do that, not being with the people directly. You simply can't be with everybody in a state and impress them um, and let them get to know you on an individual level. It, it's all got to be through marketing, which means there's a lot more room for senators to make these grand, grandiose promises and say things that they're never really going to be, uh, that they're never really going to feel accountable to, because the people aren't keeping tabs on all of the promises. We have a shorter attention span. And so these senators get in. And they've said all these things, but they can vote basically however they want because they don't feel pressure from the people to vote that way. Um, they're going to vote however they want. And six years from now, the people aren't going to remember those votes. And so they're going to just keep voting that person in because they're like, well, I'm still alive. I still have my family. Like, you know, the government doesn't feel totally run away. And so clearly my senators must have done a good job because my life is still like half decent. And so they, they just keep voting in what's familiar. And we have these people that are in for decades because people don't remember their votes or don't follow it carefully. Whereas if senators were elected by the, the state legislatures, they wouldn't have to hardly campaign at all. They wouldn't have to raise a lot of money because they don't need to advertise to millions of people. Um, the people who are going to be elected to the Senate um, most likely are gonna be people who have already been in the state legislature for a long time, have proven their loyalty to that state and their their wisdom and their ethics and, and the, you know, the qualities that a state wants in Congress, um, they've, they've already proven those things. So those people will have a track record. Um, if the state is running things right, the, the state Senate probably isn't elected by the people, it's elected by counties. And so they can look at senators in the, at the state level and, and see who has proven the ability to serve in one level of government but still represent the level of government below them. That's what we're looking for in Congress. We want someone to be in Congress, but not of Congress, right? We want someone to be in the federal government, but thinking about their interests in for this, the next level of government down. And so if the state senates are set up correctly, we will have already seen who is capable of doing that, and we can put that person in, in the federal Senate. It'll, it would make it so that the state legislatures can intimately get to know that person's character, that person's integrity, their, their consistency, their loyalty. I mean, it, it makes it so that campaigns are, are virtually free because those people get to know that senator on an individual level. 
you're more likely to know what you're getting that way. Whereas if some random person runs for the Senate, the state, uh, the federal Senate, and they've never served in office, they're a successful businessman, but like I wasn't on their staff. I don't know how they run things. Um, those people are liable to get uh, elected by the people, whereas they wouldn't have gotten elected um, perhaps by the state legislatures. So, you know, we, we say that the founders were inspired. We say that the Constitution was inspired by God, yet we don't take the founders very seriously when they set things up a certain way. We changed it, and when we see all these problems, we don't consider changing it back. I think that we should have enough confidence in the founders to say, you know what, they probably had it right. And, and being willing to make a reversal change in the constitution. There's, there's a difference between like trying to reinvent the wheel and coming up with a new idea versus changing things back to how it used to be. Yeah. Work before go back there. I mean, I've heard my dad talk about how, um, my grandfather was the first man in Hamilton County to have to pay income tax and that they, they put that in saying, this is just for a temporary time and to raise money for X, Y, Z. And, and then we're going to get rid of it, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it, and only the, you know, people who made a lot of money would have to pay it and all that. And look where we are today. And, <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. crazy. So that's another one that needs to go away too, doesn't it? Because, before the states had to figure out how to come up with the money and send it for whatever Congress approved, where now they just pick our pockets every April 15th. And, and yeah, we, there shouldn't be any question in our minds why the budget is run away and why there's constantly a deficit. It's because the house was designed intentionally by the founding fathers to represent the liberalism of the people meaning the demand for short-term um like activism the, the short the, the short game the 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 desire for quick change um members of the the house so representatives in the house were elected by the people directly and they're supposed to represent the emotionalism of the people the desire to have government solve problems quickly they're only in for two, two years. And so two years goes by crazy fast when you're not in session year round or, or even when you are like, you have to go back to the people really soon and show them all of these changes that you suggested, all of these bills that you uh, sponsored or that you passed. And, and you have to have this great track record to show in a very short window of time so it doesn't matter if, if the House is Republican or Democrat or who cares. It's, it's designed to be liberal and it's always going to be liberal in the sense that the House is just trying to get changes passed really quickly and spend as much money as they can on behalf of the people because that's what the people want from their direct representatives. The Senate was supposed to be removed from that emotionalism and was designed to be more conservative. Senators are supposed to be older. They're in for longer. They're not elected by the people directly. Everything about the Senate was designed to make them conservative. And so when the House comes up with the budget, the Senate representing states' interests, representing 
um, the long game, the long-term perspective, they're not expected to make a bunch of changes quickly. They're supposed to um, keep things stable and consistent and maintain the Republic and be guardians of the constitution. So those senators were supposed to receive the budget from the bu budget from the house. And as representatives of the state say, I don't want to go back to my state and ask for this proportion of, of this budget, cut down this budget because otherwise I have to go defend this to my state legislature and I'm not willing to do that. And so the Senate was the best defense that we had to keep the budget for the federal government trimmed and, and within the scope of what we've actually hired the federal government to do. So the 16th Amendment made it so that we don't have to get the, um, we, don't, we don't have to impress the, the states um, you know, by sending the, the budget to the state legislatures and having each state send their proportion of, of the federal budget. Uh, with the 16th Amendment, we've made it so that the federal government can tax the people directly rather than having to go through the states. So the combination of the 16th and 17th Amendments getting changed, that was an extremely deadly combination, um, which is why I believe that 1913 was the worst year in American history. That's the year that we got the Federal Reserve, that we got the 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment all in one. That was a terrible year. And I'm, I am not surprised how far the government has strayed from its original intent over the past 107 years since the since those two amendments were changed or passed so we need to create some kind of a movement to repeal the 17th and the 16th amendments right we yep. first those it would of course our people are now become government fix me junkies right the general welfare clause is also misinterpreted now too isn't it yeah so General welfare used to mean the proper role of, of government is to make changes and, and solutions that affect the people generally, not specifically. So if you have a, a bill that's going to specifically help the welfare of individuals or of classes of people or specific demographics, then that's now specific or special welfare rather than general welfare. General implies non-excludability. So national defense doesn't help some classes of America versus others. It's not giving a you know a handout to specific people and not others. It's the proper role of government is to help the people generally, not specifically. And we've totally misinterpreted the general welfare clause, and that's opened the doors to basically the government now does anything that it thinks helps the people. If uh, an action made by the federal government could make somebody's life better, then now we've said that the government has the responsibility to do that. And that's a completely different uh, trajectory than what we had asked the federal government to do before. So yeah, we need to, we need to clarify the general welfare clause we need to clarify the Commerce Clause um, so that the federal government doesn't think that it has business 
um, injecting itself into uh, our businesses and our, our commerce, because that's a disaster. We, we think that the Constitution is so far gone and, and we're never going to get it back. But when you look at the, if you list all of the provisions, all of the clauses of the Constitution, we'll have almost 300 clauses um, and provisions. And it's only about 15% of the Constitution that has been changed or ignored that allows the problems that we have today to even exist. 80, about 85% of the Constitution is still perfectly intact and runs the way it's supposed to. It's just a very important 15% that's been changed or ignored that leads to today's problems. But those changes, we can actually make those changes very quickly and we can restore our Constitution in only a couple years if the people are educated and know what those solutions are and are willing to make those changes. So people have to be willing to, to surrender their vote for senators. They have to be willing to surrender their, their direct influence on presidential elections. Um, it's scary because people trust themselves more than they trust others. And the people want to have a direct say in who their politicians are. But we need to be honest with ourselves and know that we're not doing the research and the investigation that it's going to take to choose politicians that are good, wise, and honest. And so people need to surrender that authority to somebody who is going to do that research and is going to hold those representatives accountable and realize that we're not doing a good enough job at that. Someone else needs to do that. And, and if we, for example, if we turn the responsibility of choosing senators back over the states, we're already voting for our state legislatures. So it, it's just going to increase our desire to make sure that the states are really good because then they'll choose good senators. They'll choose good electors for the president. And uh, so it's, it's a leap of faith, but we need to have confidence that the founders set it up the right way at first. You know, this is speculation, a question, but I'm thinking of, um, we are kind of leaning toward an economic collapse and some and just anarchy and everything. And I'm thinking, you know, it looks bad and it sounds bad, but could it actually be a good thing that out of that ashes could we could come back and say, okay, now we're going to just reset it up the right way. Because as long as we have these corrupt people in here and we go, okay, let them choose the president, that's not going to work real well if we're working with the existing senators. And, and so I'm thinking maybe the, ca the chaos isn't a bad thing. Maybe it will wake people up enough to say, yeah, let's just go back and do this the way it was supposed to be done. I don't know. Um, I agree that the, the chaos motivates people to find solutions that they weren't previously willing to consider. Um, on the other hand, I don't think anybody who has ever been through um, a collapse of a government and a, a new restart of government, I don't think anybody who has been through that would ever recommend it. state control instead is usually what happens if you do that. So right. Yeah. yeah. During, during that mass chaos, people are desperate for leadership. 
and they don't choose good, wise, and honest. They choose powerful, charismatic, and uh, attractive. Um, the type of people that we put in office when we're in a state of panic and desperation, that, that's not who we generally want in office. Um, the, what we pulled off during the American Revolution and setting up the Constitution, that was an unparalleled miracle that only came because uh, of a lot of sacrifice and bloodshed during the American Revolution. And I don't think anybody wants to experience another one of those. Um, I think that we're, we would be wise in following the Council of Prophets who have said we will have more success by passing a few amendments and restoring the Constitution than wiping the slate clean and starting over. Um, we were not so far gone that it would take a war to, to fix this. We literally just need to pass a couple amendments. I had to throw out a crazy idea just to, you know, just to see, okay, in case somebody's watching and says, let's just scrape that and start over. So, <laughs> so how do we do it? How do we get people to wake up and reverse those? You have a plan or how can I help? Um, we, yeah. So Cleon Skousen and, and Glenn Kimber and others were, were teaching the healing or the making of America seminars they pushed a, a pretty successful movement for for going back to the original constitution um while they were teaching the seminars they came i think within one vote of passing the liberty amendment which would have repealed the 16th and 17th amendments and abolished the federal reserve and and done all of uh, many of the things that are necessary to restore the constitution um they were it was so close to getting passed Unfortunately, they realized that the movement that they had created, the seminars that they were using were inspiring people with the love of America and a love for the Constitution and some level of education on how the Constitution was originally set up. They realized in retrospect, however, that that movement where they had taught, um, I think they said they had taught more than three million Americans that uh, those seminars. The millions of people that took those seminars were inspired and were excited about the Constitution, but they weren't trained on specifically how has America been under attack? How have secret combinations or special interest groups or, you know, corrupt politicians, how have we specifically changed over time? And what specific things need to be done to change it back. Those two parts, how has it changed? How do we change it back? They weren't, that wasn't part of the curriculum. That wasn't part of the education that was being put out there. And so people were inspired and they, they felt that love for America, but they didn't have a good call to action. They didn't have good marching orders. They didn't have um, specific amendments that were being proposed in the curriculum it was more of like an afterthought. You know, they teach the seminars and then after the seminar, they mention, oh, and there's this li li liberty amendment or there's this other um, amendment or this other proposal or other thing that you can do to get involved in. Um, they, were, they were teaching these through nonprofits, so they were kind of limited in what they could give in terms of political call to actions. 
Um, and so that's why in recent years we set up the um, Clancy Gowson and Dr. Kimber set up the Thomas Jefferson Center for Constitutional Restoration, which was designed to teach all of the seminars, not just the first two that deal with loving America and the founders and the Constitution, but also here's how it's been changed and here's how we need to restore it. So now that we have four seminars instead of two seminars, and uh, we're working on getting people trained so that we can fulfill the demand of, of teaching these seminars to people. Uh, the seminars are really thorough. They've, they've got the call to action. They've got the marching orders. They've got the, the proposals and um, the 49 or so steps to healing, healing America in the order that is most likely to succeed. Um, we just need more people to help teach those seminars and get trained. Um, and so that's, that's what the Thomas Jefferson's working on, Thomas Jefferson Center is working on right now is finding people who are um, willing to be absolutely committed to the founders' uh, solutions and teach the, teach the seminars to help promote the healing of America. Okay, so how do I sign up to be an instructor? <laughs> 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 well, I can I can send your information over to the Thomas Jefferson Center, and they have uh, monthly roundtables. So they have these monthly leadership training meetings uh, where people who are interested in teaching the seminars gather together, and Dr. Kimber provides trainings. We go through the seminars together. He provides um, a lot of stories and, and in-depth explanation on the material. We're writing that in our notes so that when we teach the seminars, we have the background stories. We know how to answer questions. We've got more material than what's, you know, specifically written in the seminar. So the roundtables are the best best way to get started on that. Yeah, send me some information. So here's a thought. You know, a lot of people are having to, or they're choosing to homeschool their kids because of COVID mm -hmm. and everything. Does your group have anything curriculum-wise for these parents to be able to teach their children about the Constitution while they have a little bit of control over what their kids are learning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm biased, and I think that um, Dr. Kimber's Academy has amazing curriculum. You can buy Kimber Academy curriculum and use that for homeschooling, or you can enroll the family in Kimber Academy. Um, Previously, uh, Dr. Kimber was charging in the range of $400, $450 a month per student for students to attend uh, classes in person. But he just launched an online school where students call in and he teaches them um, for, I think, three or three or four days of the week um, in the mornings. And that's $200 for an entire family. So it's much more affordable now than, than what it used to be. So they can either get the curriculum that's sold online or just enroll them in the online school. Um, both are great options. We also have the Columbus Center student portal. So learn.columbuscenter.org is a place that we're uploading online classes and a curriculum for um, self-guided study. So we just launched a, a class called the RG Basics course, American Foundations. But it goes through everything that somebody needs to know to have a solid foundation in American politics. Um, it's not an in-depth training on the Constitution. It's more of a, an in-depth training on the idea of America. So it goes through natural law. It goes through agency. And it goes through 
basic high level uh, a basic high level perspective on how American government was designed to work um, and it's a it's a really in-depth training um, some history on God's hand in the building of America the founding fathers being inspired uh, I mean there's there's really really good content in, in that one and I highly recommend that um, if someone's in the age group of about 18 to 35, we, we'd invite them to get involved with the restoration generation. Um, that's the group that is being trained to specifically um, get ready to teach this material um, in the communities. So, for example, this uh, summer, we have a group in Virginia that is hiring members of the restoration generation to knock doors and teach lessons on liberty as freedom missionaries. Door-to-door -door lessons on the Constitution. Um, I'm actually leaving in about a week with my companion. We're going to go out to Virginia and do a pilot of, uh, for that program. And then that group wants to hire up to 100 of our students to go out and be freedom missionaries in Virginia. And so there are opportunities for young adults to teach this material um, through the restoration generation. And then there are opportunities for, a, you know, more grown adults to, to teach these seminars through the Thomas Jefferson Center and our other nonprofits. And so there's there are a lot of ways to get involved. Uh, it really just depends on how that person wants to interact with the community um, or homeschooling parents or, you know, youth. Uh, there's there are ways for everyone to get involved, depending on who they want to be interacting with. Cool. Anything else that you can think of I need to know? I really recommend that everyone goes through the, the RG Basics course, the American Foundations class. Um, if someone signs up for the Restoration Generation, that class is included in their access, but that's more of the 18 to 35 age group. Um, but anyone else can sign up for that course. I think it's $50 for the, the seven classes. Um, it's about seven weeks of training. That course is everything I wish I had known growing up and into adulthood on American politics. Um, if someone goes through that course, they'll know far more than most politicians in America about how America is supposed to work.